Well, this week we finish up our conversation around baptism. Last week we looked at this idea of what what is baptism, and and we fleshed that out a little bit. And this this week uh, the question gets into some of what we've already talked about, but it expands on it. Uh, So our question this week, is baptism with water the washing away of sin itself? And the answer, no. Only the blood of Christ and the renewal of the Holy Spirit can cleanse us from sin. The passage for this week, Luke 3.16, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. This idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit has has caused a fair amount of confusion uh, and in in some cases has led people down whole streams of theology that I I would call unbiblical uh, and very problematic. And and part of it is because the baptism of the Holy Spirit for some is tied very closely to spiritual gifts. Um, And it's tied very closely specifically to the spiritual gifts of speaking in tongues, possibly prophecy, though tongues is often elevated above that even, to the point where if you don't speak in tongues, you are not saved. Uh, Because if you don't speak in tongues, you haven't been baptized by the Spirit. And this is based on uh, what I would call a skewed reading of Acts 2 and Acts 10. But as our question uh, and answer gets into, the renewal of the Spirit and the work of the Spirit is critical to our growth and the cleansing of sin. Now, it is through faith in Christ, but that sanctification process by, by which we become more holy is a work of the Spirit. Uh, this is Millard Erickson, theologian. He writes this about our sanctification. The Holy Spirit also works sanctification in the life of the believer. By sanctification is meant the continued transformation of moral and spiritual character so that the believer's life actually comes to mirror the standing he or she already has in God's sight. In Romans 8, 1 through 17, Paul dwells on this work of the Holy Spirit. Life in the Spirit is what God intends for the believer. Paul in Galatians 5 contrasts life in the Spirit with life in the flesh. He instructs his readers to walk by the Spirit instead of gratifying the desires of the flesh. And the idea here is that the renewal of the Spirit is a part of our being brought into the family of God, but it is also an ongoing process. So where does this idea of the baptism of the Spirit come from, and why is it tied so closely to spiritual gifts? Uh, The answer is in 1 Corinthians 12. The beginning of 1 Corinthians 12, Paul is focusing on spiritual gifts. Verses 1 through 11 or so, Paul talks about spiritual gifts and their purpose. And we've unpacked that in in previous videos, but Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 12 and 13. He says, Just as the body is one and has many members, and all members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all are made to drink of one spirit." But notice here, when when Paul talks about the baptism of the Spirit, it is in direct reference to belonging to the body of Christ, not necessarily the distribution of spiritual gifts. Again, I'll, I'll read verse 13. In one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, 
Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And, and so Paul very clearly ties the idea of being baptized by the spirit to the idea of being brought together into the body of Christ. We are united with Christ and with one another by this baptism of the Spirit. It's important to note that this passage is not entirely disconnected from spiritual gifts, but the idea that baptism of the Spirit means we speak in tongues and is the speaking in tongues is a sign of our salvation does not hold up to careful study of 1 Corinthians 12. In fact, I think a careful study of just even that verse would show, would indicate that all genuine believers, those who have placed their faith in Christ, have been baptized by the Spirit, which connects much more closely to what Erickson unpacks in his uh, speaking on the Holy Spirit. So again, This verse says, in one spirit, we all were baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. And so Paul talks about gifts of the spirit, but when he talks about baptism of the spirit, it is much more closely connected to our being unified with Christ and with other believers. And so it it seems to connect much more closely to our justification And so when we are justified, we are given the Spirit. We are renewed and being renewed. And that's that's part of what baptism of the Spirit is talking about. It is this being brought together, God giving us His Spirit, being indwelt by His Spirit. And by the Spirit, we are sanctified as we grow in relationship to Christ. Now, there's another area of baptism that we have not talked about that I think is important to note before we finish uh, these questions focused on the ordinance of baptism, and that's infant baptism. There are a couple of reasons why infant baptism has been held throughout church history. Uh, One relates to a theological system that sees baptism as a fulfillment of circumcision. And so, in the Old Testament, the people of God were circumcised, and so in the New Testament, the people of God ought to be baptized. Uh, And the the system would would argue, uh, covenantalism primarily, though some others as well, in these systems, the idea is not all of ethnic Israel was saved. Uh, There were, were some who likely were not believers and so do not experience salvation. But all of ethnic Israel was circumcised. And so, in the New Testament then, what this system of theology would argue is that baptism signifies the same thing that circumcision does. You identify with the people of God, but it doesn't equate to salvation, just as some of Israel probably was not saved, so people who were baptized as infants are not necessarily saved. There still has to be a proclamation of faith, but it's an identification with the church. And so, circumcision is the predecessor to baptism. Baptism fulfills circumcision. And just as infants were circumcised in the Old Testament then, so infants should be baptized in the New Testament. That's what this system argues. Uh, author Stephen Wellam has has kind of said, there's a lot of covenantalism that's really, really good and we want to hold on to, but this aspect is an area where it falls short. And if you want to have a conversation around that, would love to grab a cup of coffee and and talk through that. But the other area that people point to to say infant baptism is something that should be practiced is the idea of baptism of households in 
the book of Acts. We see it in Acts 16. We see it in 1 Corinthians a little bit. Uh, but we, we see this idea that whole households are baptized. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology has something helpful to say in this, to this point. He writes this. The example of household baptisms in the New Testament are really not decisive for one position or another. When we look at the actual examples more closely, we see that in a number of them, there are indications of saving faith on the part of all those baptized. For example, it is true that the family of the Philippian jailer was baptized, Acts 16.33, but it is also true that Paul and Silas, quote, spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house, Acts 16.32. If the word of the Lord was spoken to all in the house, there is an assumption that all were old enough to understand the word and believe it. Moreover, after the family had been baptized, we read that the Philippian jailer rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So we have not only a household baptism, but also a household reception of the word of God and a household rejoicing in the faith of God. These facts suggest quite strongly that the entire household had individually come to faith in Christ. So we see a couple of examples of household baptisms and we we have these systems that say, well, if the church is the fulfillment of Israel, then uh, baptism is a fulfillment of circumcision. If infants were circumcised in the old covenants, they should be baptized under the new covenant. And then we have the baptism of households, which, which would say we see people being baptized as households, likely including infants um, or at least children. I, but I think there are answers to both, and I think the, the weight of Scripture is behind baptism after a proclamation of faith. You have in Acts 8, for example, uh, Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch, and it seems to be after the, the eunuch has received the word of the Lord, he sees water and says, what prevents me from being baptized? And, and Philip baptizes him. Um, and we see baptism attached to faith very clearly throughout the New Testament. So where does that, again, leave us? Once, once more, we are reminded that baptism does not save, it, it signifies. And it is a command of Christ to be baptized, and so we want to follow him in that. We want to pursue that. But we also remember that we are not saved by baptism, we are saved by faith in Christ. And Christ gives us his spirit to indwell us that we might grow and be sanctified. And so we are to walk in the spirit, not in the flesh. And we are to grow in our faith. And that's what part of what baptism signifies, is a starting point of that faith. It, it reminds us of the, the, the justification, the starting point before God, and then we grow from there. And that's where we're going to get into the ongoing ordinance of the Lord's Supper in the coming weeks.